Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 156. Ordinary people can get enlightened. In this episode, we speak with Kenneth Volk, a longtime Theravada practitioner and meditation teacher, about his spiritual journey and his progressive development through the traditional stages of meditation. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn. And I'm joined today, actually, I'm really excited. I'm joined today by a close friend and teacher of mine named Kenneth Folk. Kenneth, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm excited about this, too. Cool, cool. So, you're a longtime practitioner. You've probably been practicing, what, like 15, 20 years, something like that? About, uh, let's see, since 1982 was my first big opening. So, 20-some However many that is. Long, just longer than I've been alive. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, and in most of your practice, I understand most of your formal practice has been in the Theravada tradition. So you've done a lot of retreats here in the West and also in Asia, which maybe we'll get into that more. And currently, you're a meditation teacher, kind of spare time online. You do most of your teaching and sharing, and there's a community that you're leading at kennethfolk.com. So if people are interested, they can check it out. And then your main career is actually as a ESL teacher, English uh, second language. I understand you just finished your master's. And I remember you starting your bachelor's. So you did this in like a couple years. You just flew through school. I did. I started my my bachelor's four years ago. So I got my bachelor's and my and my master's in four years. I was able to test out of a lot of stuff. So that's the advantage of starting college when you're 48 years old. <laughs> Nice, and I bet you had some of the, the benefits of the meditation practice to help with uh, studying and stuff, too. Yeah, I suppose it, it doesn't hurt to be able to concentrate. And then, just to say a little bit about how we met, I met you uh, through Daniel Ingram, who's someone we've had on the show a few times, and you guys were friends for a long time, and I met you at the annual three-month retreat at the uh, Insight Meditation Society, and it was so cool, you were on staff there. And uh, I had a chance before I got there to be emailing with you about my practice. And then we chatted before the retreat started. I was there for six weeks and then afterwards. And it was really nice speaking with you. I felt like I had a lot of support. And because you have a unique perspective, which we'll get into, it really helped me figure some stuff out and find a direction to go in after that, which was my first long retreat. So I really appreciated that. And then since then, I've been bugging you and pestering you every once in a while. Say, hey, Kenneth, you want to be on Buddhist Geeks? And uh, the timing just wasn't right. So finally, I bugged you enough and the timing was right. So so thank you for, uh, again, taking the time. The truth is, I feel really honored to be on the show. And I, I've always wanted to be on the show, but it was a matter of really just not having enough time being in college and grad school. And so now the time is right. And because I'm not in school, I can devote so much more time to teaching. Mm. So if there's a big influx of visitors to the website or new students, well, I, I'm in a position now to, to take care of them. Nice. Cool. So one thing 
that I thought would be fun, and I've heard you share little bits and pieces of your kind of your story. I thought it'd be cool to go into your spiritual path. You said your first opening was in 1982. It'd be interesting to hear kind of how you got into this stuff and then how it progressed from there. Good. Well, it will be fun for me to tell this story because although I've told parts of it, I've never really told the whole thing. So I, I might, uh, I might wax eloquent and, and tell the whole story here. Great. I want to set it up just by saying that I am audacious enough. What I really want to say here is that it's possible to get enlightened. And I know that because it happened to me. And it wasn't entirely by accident. In other words, 28 years of working at it, and it's an ongoing process. So I'm hoping that by telling this story, other people understand that regular average people who aren't wearing robes and aren't even Asian, or whether they are Asian or not, it is possible for ordinary people to get enlightened. The first time that even the concept of meditation entered my consciousness was when I was in high school in Southern California. I remember watching a film strip, and this particular film strip was about Japan. And they showed some Zen monks sitting, and the caption said that the idea here was for the mind not to wander. And if the mind wandered for any of these people who were sitting in black robes, cross-legged on the floor, they would raise their hand, and then some other guy in a black robe would whack them with a stick. That just struck me as being so remarkable. In the first place, that you would volunteer to be whacked by a stick, and then secondly, that you would even care whether your mind wandered. So that kind of rattled around for many years, but the truth is I wasn't spiritually inclined at all. So fast forward until I was 24 years old. It's 1982 now. I was a suicidally depressed cocaine addict in Los Angeles. I was a professional musician, and I had a lot of free time to sit around being depressed and wonder how my life had gone so terribly wrong. I was trying to kick my cocaine habit and it was just, I was not able to do that. It was lingering and, and torturing me. And one night, having exhausted all the cocaine in the house and feeling depressed, I then took four hits of LSD. And uh, while I'm, I'm uh, neither advocating nor uh, taking any kind of a moral stance about drugs, this is what happened. So... I took the LSD, and I watched a couple movies on television, and I watched a part of a movie, the movie Shogun, about a European ship pilot who I believe was shipwrecked in Japan and essentially adopted samurai culture. And there was one scene that just happened to come on at, during the, this short period of time that I was watching it, and it's where this European pilot, who has become a samurai, decides to commit ritual suicide, seppuku, in front of his shogun, or his samurai master. So he takes out his knife, and he's about to plunge it into his abdomen and disembowel himself. And just as he's tensing his muscles to do this, 
another samurai reaches over and grabs his hand and prevents him from doing this because the shogun had given a signal, no, don't let him do it. I thought to myself, what changes would go on in the mind of a person who had accepted death completely in a moment and yet didn't die? This seemed extremely profound to me. So I turned off the TV. I went into my bedroom and I lay on my back on my bed and I had nothing really left to do except reflect upon the uh, unsatisfactoriness of my life. One last movie reference here. I thought about a movie I had seen called Little Big Man. And there's a scene in that movie where an old Indian chief goes outside, lies down on a funeral pyre. It's not lit. It's just a bunch of sticks at this point. So he lies down on it, and he says to himself, today is a good day to die. So this went through my mind, and I thought to myself, yes, yes, indeed, today is a good day to die. And my mind felt so powerful and so focused in that moment I really believed, I was absolutely convinced that I could will myself to death. By the way, in the movie, the old Indian chief doesn't succeed the first time. He lies down and he doesn't die. He gets up and goes about his business. But at the end of the movie, he does it again and it works. He dies. So I'm lying there, meditating. I had uh, learned to meditate a couple of years earlier. Uh, My brother taught me to do it as a kind of relaxation exercise. Just follow the breath and kind of go into the the dark void behind your eyelids and relax. As I was going about dying, a very scary thing happened. It occurred to me that if I did die, I would be opening myself up to whatever forces were out there. And I had a very visceral sense that there were some kind of malevolent forces, some kind of evil that would just wash over me and take over if I let down my, my guard. I think I also understood the irony in that moment that I had never let down my guard before. So here I was 24 years old, and somehow I had managed to keep up this wall to keep something, who knows what, from entering my consciousness and taking it over. I could feel this malevolence clamoring outside the gates trying to get in. And it was very scary, to say the least. But it occurred to me that this evil was so evil that I thought this must be what Satan is, this religious notion of the devil. Now, I wasn't the least bit religious. I thought that anything religious was ridiculous. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in the devil. But somehow here I'm I'm thinking the devil's going to get me, and it was no joke. But it then occurred to me, well, okay, I don't believe in the devil, but if there is such a thing as the devil, there must also be such a thing as God. In which case, if I open myself up entirely, then... I don't know, it would either be a wash or God would win. And somehow that gave me just enough courage to go ahead and and take the leap. So I did. 
I opened up entirely, surrendered to death, and set about the business of dying once again. And something really extraordinary happened. Looking back on it, reading later about near-death experiences, I realized that what I had had was a classic near-death experience. So the first thing that happened was I had this kind of instantaneous life review. All the things that I'd done that were bad, so to speak, and all the things that I'd done that were good, and the fruit of each of those things. This is something that I would later learn is an insight into karma. There was no judgment whatsoever. It was completely accepting. All right, this is how it is. This is what happened. No harm, no foul, but these are the karmic results of what you did. Next thing that happened, I found myself being drawn up through some kind of a tube toward the sky, kind of maybe a a glass tube would describe this. And it was a long glass tube, so I'm going up and up, and it's going this, going on and on, but it's fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm riveted by this experience. And there were some kind of little semi-disembodied beings on the other side of this glass tube trying to get my attention, keeping pace with me as I'm being sucked up toward the sky, and apparently trying to communicate with me. And I remember thinking, well, this is some kind of a challenge. I've got to find a way to communicate with these beings, but we don't have a language in common. And so how can I communicate with them? And it seemed to me it was kind of a quest or a challenge. I should find some common ground with these things so I could communicate. Well, it didn't happen. I wasn't able to come up with any common ground, and eventually I outpaced them, and they just disappeared. So I'm being sucked up ever faster. This is accelerating. And I was able to see that there was an end to this thing, and the end of it was white light or this blinding, perfect light beyond imagining. And just about the time I first glimpsed it, because I was going so fast, I was pulled into it and merged with it. And this was by far, far and away, the most extraordinary experience of my life because now I was one with this kind of cosmic consciousness, and it was a literally mind-blowing experience. I was thinking this must be what people are talking about when they say God, but it wasn't God as I had understood. It wasn't this kind of simplistic notion of this big guy up in the sky that, that's like me, only, only big and powerful. It was everything. And in that moment of merger with this cosmic consciousness or, or Godhead would be a way to describe this, it was as though I knew everything or everything that needed to be known was known, and yet there was no reason to ask because it was all there. This felt really good, and I thought, all right, everything up until now, my entire life has been a dream, and now I'm awake. Now this is real. And almost immediately I realized that it wasn't going to last. I was getting kicked out of the garden. Later I wrote in my journal... As I lay naked beneath God's crushing foot, I asked him to throw me a bone. Nobody's going to believe this. At that time, I'd never even heard anybody talk about anything like this. So I thought, nobody will believe this. So isn't there something I can take back with me? It wasn't clear whether there was or not. But nonetheless, I was kicked out of the garden. 
and found myself lying on my back on my bed with my mind completely blown. Now, as it happened, my cocaine addiction vanished in that moment. I just never had any inclination to use it again. And I suppose you could say that was the bone. I was thrown a bone, and that was it. My life changed completely in that moment, and this set me on a quest to try and understand what had happened to me and to try and get it back, because the glow of it, in some senses, I suppose, never wore off, because I always knew that there was this reality beyond my ordinary little self, but that was not accessible to me at that time. And so I began to read. I started reading self-improvement books, like there's a fellow named Dr. Wayne Dyer. I suppose there still is such a fellow. And he writes books about how to realize your potential as a human being. So that was a place to start. And then at some point, I got on to the Ramdas book, Be Here Now. This started to, to really click for me now. So he was making these semi-understandable references to enlightenment and spirituality and talking about his guru and his all kinds of really interesting stories, but still not particularly clear. It wasn't really coming around for me. For those first few years, I really didn't even know there was something called enlightenment. Or if I even heard the word, it was never clear what that might mean. I began reading Buddhist books, and so now I was getting ever closer. I remember reading Alan Watts and learning something about Zen meditation, and then reading The Three Pillars of Zen. I remember reading Uspensky writing about Gurdjieff. All these hints, but most of this, frankly, was way too vague and not particularly helpful. So it wasn't until 1990, so eight years after my first opening, I met a fellow named Bill Hamilton in Southern California. He was a Buddhist teacher who taught Vipassana meditation in the uh, Mahasi Sayadaw style, and he started talking about enlightenment as though it were something fairly concrete. And he talked about four paths of enlightenment that could be systematically attained by systematically applying a technique. And there were even subdivisions of enlightenment within each of those four paths. And Bill, Bill Hamilton, this teacher, began to uh, almost immediately to broadly hint that he had attained at least two of these four paths of enlightenment. And suddenly this all became real for me. Now, rather than being some vague, airy-fairy thing that Zen teachers would tell stories about, here was a guy who was saying, there is something called enlightenment, and I've got it. At least I've got some significant amount of it, and I'm working toward getting more of it. Now, notice how uh, this is all sounding very much like spiritual materialism. Here's something called enlightenment, and I'm getting it. And yeah, that's exactly how I was conceiving it at that time. But I really embraced this practice. Within a few months of meeting this teacher, 
he had convinced me to do a three-month retreat at Insight Meditation Society, which is where I met Vince. This was back in 91. I did the, the three-month IMS retreat, and I went through a lot of these stages that were described thousands of years ago in the progress of insight. There are these very precise maps of what happens when a yogi meditates, and these things happen in invariable order, and it doesn't really matter who you are. This is a remarkable thing, that your mind is actually set up. It has a structure, and even if you don't tell a yogi what to expect, that yogi will go through these stages just like thousands and millions of yogis have in the past. After the three-month retreat, I went back home to Southern California from Massachusetts where the meditation center is, and I gave my report to Bill Hamilton, my teacher, and he listened to it and fell asleep during part of it because I got a little too verbose with what I thought about what was happening. He was really only interested in what was happening. For example, what were the sensations that you felt when you meditated? It took me years to figure out that my teachers didn't care what I thought about my meditation because it seemed so important to me. But they didn't care. They couldn't tell anything by that. They could tell where I was on these maps by what actually happened to me. So if I said, when I follow the rise and fall of my abdomen, I feel warmth, tightness, expansion, contraction. Those really simple terms are so much more relevant to the Vipassana teachers than anything you think or I think about our meditation. Well, after listening to this report, Bill told me that I had gone through 11 of the 16 insight knowledges, or jnanas, leading up toward the first path of enlightenment, and I hadn't attained the first path. I was getting there. I was pretty close. So what I should do, he told me, is go to Asia and do an extended retreat, which I did. I had retired, by the way, from being a professional musician. And I'd like to point out at this moment that although my drug addiction went away with my first opening in 1982, my depression did not. And I was plagued by depression throughout these years to the point of being dysfunctional many times. And I um, gave up playing music professionally in 89 or 90, partially as a result of burnout on that, on that lifestyle and that scene, but also because I was depressed. I couldn't uh, really do anything. And I was consciously or unconsciously committing myself to my spiritual endeavor, my spiritual quest. So I was working as a pizza man, Bill told me you should go to Asia and do a long-term retreat. So I hustled enough pizzas to save up enough money. I sold my little Honda Civic, and I bought a one-way ticket to Malaysia, understanding that I was going to then go to Burma. I didn't know when I was going to come back. I really planned to get enlightened. And in fact, I wanted to get second path while I was in Asia during that first trip however long that took. I remember saying to my interview teacher, a Burmese monk in Malaysia, I'm going to stay in Asia 
until I get second path. And he looked at me in his, in his deep voice. He said, good plan. That was real validation for me because then I understood that not only did Bill Hamilton take seriously the idea that enlightenment was possible and that I could do it, but Saida Urajinda also took this seriously, that these were very real, doable things. Well, as it happened, within about two months of arriving at Malaysian Buddhist Meditation Center in Penang, Malaysia, under the instruction of the Burmese monk, Saida Urajinda, I did get first path. And the way this happened, I had gotten to a point in my practice and for those of you who haven't done a Theravada Buddhist retreat, this is very intensive meditation. So you get up early in the morning and you meditate, alternating sitting meditation and walking meditation, an hour sitting and an hour walking. Then you eat breakfast, which they feed you. There's very little for you to do other than meditate. Maybe you'll spend 10 minutes sweeping the floor of the monastery and then back to meditation all day long. So I had gotten to the point where I was sitting for a couple of weeks. Meditation had become quite uneventful. All of the big, exciting, wow things of my earlier practice had kind of eased up, and I was just sitting. This is what they call knowledge of equanimity on the map. And one day after lunch, I was sitting, and I got so deep in my meditation it was almost as though I went to sleep or just lost consciousness for a moment. And then suddenly I perked up and I said to myself, what was that? Was that it? I think that was it. It meaning first path. And I had been alerted by Bill Hamilton that first path is actually a great anticlimax. Whereas the first opening like what I had with my big unity experience in the white light, that is not enlightenment. That is, as Bill put it, it's the relationship of a seed to the blossom that will later come to fruition. When you get to first path, you've completed a certain part of a larger circuit. So you've completed a sub-circuit, let's say. And there's a sense of stability you know something happened. You know you're off that portion of the ride. And I'm using these words very carefully because there's a bigger ride, and the bigger ride is what's over at Fourth Path. So the day that I got First Path in Malaysia, I remember getting up from that sitting and just walking around laughing for about a day. I felt so free, and life was good. It turned out that I immediately found that I had access to four jhanas. Four jhanas meaning particular recognizable states of consciousness that are very pleasant. And I found that I was able to jump between them. So these four jhanas would normally arise in order, one, two, three, four, but I could go from one to four or from four to two and, and so forth, jumping around. And the depth and clarity of these new meditative states was completely different than it had been the day before. So this was some validation that what I intuited to be first path was indeed first path. 
and side of Urajinda, although he didn't say to me, yes, Kenneth, you attained first path. He hinted around to let me believe that he was buying what I was selling, that I had attained first path. From there, I went to Burma. So I was uh, during that retreat, that was a year-long retreat, half in Malaysia and half in Burma. When I got to Burma, I practiced with Saida Upandita, this uh, cantankerous old Burmese monk, very famous, very well thought of in Burma and around the world, and a real master of, of the technical aspect of, of meditation. Uh, Saida Upandita really pounded into me what the meditation technique was. It was very important to him that I not space out or get into sleepy, dreamy states. And we had some conflict about this because I was actually in the review phase after first path. I never attempted to just sit down and say that to him, but I I tried through my reporting to let him understand where I was. Now, whether he understood where I was or not, I'll never know because it's not his style to be so direct. But Saida Upandita didn't like the way I was reporting and kind of prodded me to be very specific in the way I was meditating and very careful in the way I was reporting. And I think kind of launched me on toward the next, the next cycle, on toward second path. Now, even though I had told Saida Uvarjinda in Malaysia a few months previously that I was going to stay in Burma until I got second path, I didn't do that. After about a year, I went back, back to the States, and moved to Alaska, of all places, and took a job as an apprentice woodcarver in a little town in Alaska, and became the, medita- the village meditation teacher. After a few months there, I went back to Malaysia, back to Alaska, and back to Malaysia and Burma again. And while in Burma, on my third Asian retreat, I attained to the second path of the four paths of insight. And when I got back home, Bill Hamilton more or less confirmed that for me. So at this point, it was abundantly clear that the four paths were real. There are a couple of ways to talk about these four paths. One is in terms of what actually happens to you. In other words, what are the the physical phenomena involved? And another way is to talk about what would happen to somebody, what would be the effect upon somebody who attained, for example, second path. There are all kinds of stories and myths that have arisen about this. Most of them are nonsense. And it became ever more apparent to me as I worked my way up through the system that I was not becoming a superman and I wasn't becoming a saint and my morality was not becoming perfected. And that what was happening here was a very organic process that I've more recently come to think of as what I call a physio-energetic process. There is some energy that arises in the body and can be developed in stages. And that's what's happening. All of the stuff, all the stories that we layer onto that, that 
if you reach this stage, you're going to act a certain way or you're going to be incapable of committing various immoral acts. That's just fantasy island. So for me, through the years, these two understandings, these two ways of mapping enlightenment, of mapping developmental enlightenment, have diverged. I've completely given up on the notion that you're going to develop to the point of of being incapable of lying, for example, or, or of being incapable of anger or lust. I'm hoping that we'll talk more about that later, but I'm going to leave that aside for the moment. So that was second path. Third path was not so clear. It wasn't clear. I don't know when the exact moment happened, but I know that at some point I was able to access jhanas, these uh, absorption states, that are beyond the first eight. The first eight jhanas are the ones we hear about mostly in Buddhism, but there are five more, and the five more are called the Sudawasa or pure abodes. And these are said, according to traditional Theravada maps, to only be accessible to those who have attained third path uh, or beyond. So the uh, obvious implication of that is that if you have more than eight jhanas, you are an anagami or a third path practitioner. This, uh, for me, sometime in the mid-90s, I stumbled upon the ninth jhana, so the first of the five upper jhanas, the, the pure abodes. And this is kind of an interesting story how this happened because I was experimenting, as I often do, with techniques. I basically am very opportunistic. I'll do anything just to see what happens. I was thinking about something I'd read that according to mythology, a certain Buddha called Amitabha Buddha, the Buddha of compassion, made a vow. He promised all living beings, all humans, that if we would just invoke his name, we could instantly be transported to the pure land, whatever that was, one of the Buddhist heavens. And so I thought, well, here again, I I don't believe things just because it's something to believe in, but I'll try it. And so I remember I was sitting in my car and saying to myself, okay, with, with all of my... With all of my sincerity, I'm going to say Namo Amitabha in the name of Amitabha Buddha. I'm going to invoke the name of this Buddha and see if I get transported to the pure land. Remember, this is all in the context of being a very depressed adult. So I tried it, and I found that I entered a state of boundless gratitude and, and happiness, that seemed very much like the Pure Land. I mean, I could certainly imagine why somebody would call it that. So I dubbed it the Pure Land Jhana. And I found that I could conjure up that state at will by either remembering this boundless gratitude or, interestingly enough, by focusing on the third eye area, which is a chakra, the brow chakra, according to some systems, And later on, I realized that that was the moment where I can say for sure I had to take third path.
Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.